joy dropping your kids off with our ladies that work the nursery. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4. So, as we, uh, we seek to end the year and at the same time start a new trend. Many years ago, I uh, was just starting out in the ministry and uh, had an old preacher. Uh, he was filling in for our pastor at the time and he got up and preached a, uh, the final sermon of the year. And uh, he was trying to be challenging and encouraging, and it was, for the most part, it was really good. I enjoyed it. But he said something that I thought was really impactful, and I've sort of kept it with me, and I've repeated it to you guys a few times over the last few years, and that's it. You know, as we come to the end of the year, we look back on the year that was, right? And we, we evaluate things. And I know some of our kids, you're in the middle of school year, you're thinking, well, the year is not quite done. For you guys, school the year really begins in September and ends in, in May, but we know that um, at times like this, as we seek to say goodbye to the year before past and we look to the new one, we have to ask ourselves, what about us has changed? What has is, what is impacted us? And the thing that you'll have to remember and realize is that um, when it comes down to it, the only impact that you have in your life in the, years to, in, in the year past is the people you've met that are new and the books that you've read, the way that you have invested in yourself. And so when you look back on your year, how many different people have you met? How many books have you read? What have you focused on? What has been your, your main overriding desire? I think that our overriding desire should be Jesus Christ, obviously. And I would encourage you as you're opening the book of James, look in chapter 4, because that's where we're going to be. We're going to spend our time there this morning. James is an interesting book. It's one of the earliest books that we have in the New Testament. Um, in fact, as far as we know, James and the book of Galatians are the two books that rival each other for as far as their, their early writing. We don't know exactly um, when either one of them were written, but we can tell by context um, and the way that it was uh, passed around so uh, prolifically in the early church to realize that these two were probably the earliest. My own opinion is, is that James was the first uh, writ letter written to the uh, early church. James was the, um, as far as we know, the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he wrote um, uh, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, he worked uh, very closely with uh, James, uh, uh, the brother of John, as well as John and Peter, and the rest of the apostles before uh, they spread out to uh, parts unknown. And throughout this letter, we see a common thread that runs through it, and that is that James is trying to show us that a twisted or deformed desire is often the source that brings about conflict and frustration in our lives as Christians, believers, as in churches, as well as just our individual lives. And wherever active faith is not exercised, that deformed or twisted desire tends to rear its ugly head. One of the things that you see, I know growing up, I, we used to see the comedian Flip Wilson, and one of his favorite comedian phrases was, the devil made me do it. And he would always, he'd always use that. He would do something stupid and crazy, and then he would just blame it on the devil. And oftentimes, we have a tendency to do that as well. We, we all have a tendency to push off all the bad things that happen to us or our poor decisions on the devil is the problem. The issue that we see in James is that he never really throws the demon or the devil under the bus as far as he's the reason. He's always bringing about the idea that the, 
the main source of conflict and frustration in our lives is ourselves, and that we tend to have twisted and evil thinking. Uh, Calvin, uh, John Calvin, was a big proponent to this. He talked about um, the fact that uh, man's heart is, is depraved and utterly evil above all else, and that we, left to our own devices, cannot really understand and know God. James wants us to realize that um, rather than putting it off on, a de- uh, on demonic activity, we need to recognize that there is, a, there is a, uh, a nature within us, an evil that resides in the character of every human being that makes us flawed. And it, is, it begins and ends with our unwillingness to be submissive to the Word of God. And when we choose not to do that, that's when these conflicts come in. So we see that right in the beginning as, John, as James uh, starts off in chapter 4. He says, what is the source of quarrel, quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Those are the first two verses. In fact, if you read back in the previous chapter, you can see that James is carrying on a a previous discussion that sort of culminates in the first few verses of chapter 4. But we get the idea. The idea here is that the, the source, the problems that we have in our life, most of the time our own doing. And I, I hate to say that because I love to pass the blame on it, just like everybody else. And it's easy to do that because that's where pride comes in, right? We have a pride in ourselves. We oftentimes feel that we are better than we really are. And that's one of the issues, I think, that's at heart with who we are. Look what he says here. He says that quarrels and conflicts, these are military terms that James is using. In fact, this entire chapter, um, is he uses many of the uh, uh, first century military terms in the Greek. And we see that he is talking about these, these quarrels, these strives, these wars, these conflicts that are within us. They are the, the real wars is the pleasures that we seek for ourselves. The word there in Greek for pleasures is hedonin. It, it, it's the word we get hedonism from. It's the idea that we lift our pleasure above other things. In fact, um, some of the great philosophers from Aristotle down have often made the statement that mankind and even animals, all animals, all and being that we're animals too, is, is what uh, Aristotle was thinking, is that we seek our own pleasure at all times. We want to be happy. We want to seek our greatest amount of pleasure. Now, mankind has the opportunity. We have the ability to look at what our own pleasures are and line them up against that moral compass that we have in Scripture and be able to ask God in His Word and through the Holy Spirit to give us discernment to know that when our pleasures and the things that we're seeking are not in His will. That's what you see in verse 2. It says that you're lusting after things you don't have. This is all idolatry. This is dealing with things that, that we want, that we, deserve, we feel like we deserve. And in our culture, it doesn't take very long for us to watch even one or two commercials before we start feeling like we deserve something. Um, so a lot of you guys know that I, I'm an avid faster. I fast often. And you also know that um, I'm usually on some sort of a, a diet to try to lose weight because I've been fat a long time. And it's hard to get rid of it. And I'd say one of the worst, worst things to do in the middle of a diet, for me, is, is pizza and cupcakes. 
Um, I struggle with those. And it just invariably, and now granted Sandy's doing much better, but invariably I would come home after a day of, of dieting and doing my own thing and Sandy had made, you know, one of those really nice frozen pizzas that just permeates the smell in the house or she would make big fresh baked bread or, or brand new cupcakes were purchased and, and I just have a hard time turning them down. And, you know, it's funny is, is, is I don't just walk in the house and grab a slice and start stuffing it in my face. No, because I want to be good. I walk in the house, I feel the, I hear the smell and I see everybody else eating and I walk past the, the, the plate with the pizza on it and I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I'll walk past it again and no, I'm not going to do that. And then I find myself making special trips past the, the pizza um, to remind myself how I shouldn't have it, right? And by, by the end of the night, I've already justified within my mind how I deserve a slice of pizza because I've, I've worked hard that day or I've done a lot that day or, or maybe I was just a really good guy that day, right? So I deserve a slice of pizza. And before I know it, my diet's out the window, the pizza's in the belly, and I'm still fat as I always was. But this is where it begins, right? It is conceived in the mind. And that's what James is trying to tell us, is that we conceive this in our mind. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, James is not actually saying that the people in the church are out slaying people left and right. This is a different thing altogether. He's bringing out the idea that murder isn't always ending a person's life. We can kill somebody without taking a life. We can do it with slander. We can do it with a willful destruction of an individual's life. We can do it by shunning somebody. We can do it in so many different ways. And the murder that happens actually happens within our heart, in our soul. He talks about being envious, wanting things. This is all straight from from the, the, the Ten Commandments. I mean, he's not giving us anything new. He's just elaborating on it even more. Look what he says. He says, you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Then he expounds on that, verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. I can't count the number of times that we've asked things from God. I've asked things from God. And I've asked in the wrong way because I'm not asking for God's will to be done in my life. I'm asking for my will to be done in my life. And I'm asking God's blessing. And that's not the way it should be. We should never ask God to bless and sanctify our own desires. We should then rather say, God, what is it you desire? Because here's the thing. God isn't out for our blood. He isn't out for us to be um, imprisoned or in pain. He actually, Jesus actually said, what father would give their child a serpent if he asked for? No parent is going to do that. No parent's going to do that. And God is obviously much better parent than we are. He wants us to be happy. He wants to bless us. But we need to not ask with the wrong motives. And that's what he's saying here. And then he pulls out the adulterer word. I love that in verse 4. You know, he just throws that down. I can only imagine what the first century readers were, were getting out of this. As soon as they came into this word, I mean, you can, almost, you can almost hear that pin drop as soon as they would read that word to themselves. As silence reigned, as they, as they wondered, what does James know, right? How far does the Holy Spirit knowledge that James is writing from extend into our midst? When I read this, the first time I thought, I thought, man, that's pretty extreme. 
But James is using Old Testament words. He's using uh, Hebrew sayings to bring out the concept. When he's talking about adulterers or adulteresses, he's saying those of you that are unfaithful, unwilling to be able to submit yourself to a loving God, unwilling to, to be what God has called you to be, you've walked away. He's pulling in all that Old Testament times and stories of when the children of Israel would, would willingly walk away from the will of God and have to be punished. He's saying, you adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there's a phrase that I don't think any of us want applied to ourselves. No one wants to sit back and say, I'm an enemy of God. But the truth is, all of us have times in our life where we are. Because we choose our own world, our own worldly desires over God. We choose not to submit, not to let God serve and and be a part of us. We are being faithless. And James wants us to know that. And then he gets down, I'm going to move down to verse 6, because I think this is the part that I really want to jump into. And this is the the bulk of the sermon, I think, is we're going to be dealing with. And and if I had to put a title on this, and I I didn't put a title this week, um, I would just say Humble Yourself is, um, is the best title you can have for this. Because I think humility is what God has called us to be and to do. Look at verse 6. He says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. D.L. Moody, the great older preacher, once said that humility doesn't come naturally to most of us. It's a virtue. If you think you have it, you probably don't. D.L. Moody used to pray. Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know you're doing it. I thought that was a pretty good prayer. See, walking in humility means that we confess our sins and we forgive our enemies. We admit our mistakes. We don't brag about how good and great we are. It also means that we serve others with a smile and not a frown. That's hard sometimes. In fact, it's hard almost all the time. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God. We got that. We're good with the armor of God. But he goes a step further and he says, So you'll be able to resist the devil in the day and having done everything to stand firm. It begins with humility and moves, it moves to resisting and standing firm. Notice how it says in verse 6, God gives greater grace. It begins with the grace and moves through. Now, I've made a list of about six different things. We're talk- I know some of you guys like lists, and I know um, you want to write these down. Some of you do, some of you don't. If uh, you don't, that's fine. Um, but if you do, I'm going to give you a list of six things. We're starting in the new year, right? Um, next week will be the new year. In fact, is it tomorrow or the next day? I forget. Tuesday. Okay. I, I lose track. If I-, I, did- I wouldn't know it was Sunday if I didn't know it was Sunday. So. But anyway, um, this week is a crazy week. But I made a list of of six things that I thought, um, after reading this passage that we're about to read, would give us uh, some guidelines as we move forward. See, James is telling us the problem. The problem is our faithfulness. The problem is our unwilling to submit to God. And then he lays out a the cure. It lays out the how we can move from where we are to where God wants us to. And he gives us six basic things that we can look at. It starts off in verse seven. He says, "Submit, therefore, to God." Begins with submit. Surrender to God. This is one of the hardest things that we can ever do. 
You see, if pride is the first sin that we have, then humility should be the first virtue. If you want to know God better, we should humble ourselves. If you want to receive God's approval for the things that you're doing, we should humble ourselves. If you would like to have that breakthrough victory moment where you know that God is right beside you and waging war on the enemies and you're able to see his kingdom expand beyond anything that you've ever completely imagined yourself, we have to humble ourselves. Walking in humility is not easy. But this is what God has called us to do. And if you ask me if there's one thing, one thing that we should do, and I, I would say in the coming year, I would say that humility needs to be our guidepost. It needs to be our beginning as we seek to honor God. And we can only do that through his grace and through his mercy. Humility is often aspired to, but hard to come by. And every once in a while, you'll see it. Every once in a while, it'll manifest itself in a way that just would really make you stand up and say, wow. I think the best description I ever have of being humble, and you guys know that I'm a huge Buffalo Bills fan. I know, don't laugh. It's not, it's not funny, it's serious. In 1994, Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl. And they lost. And it was a miserable loss. Their running back, Thurman Thomas, sat there at the end of the game. His head was bowed, his hands were covering his face. He sat on the bench because he didn't know what else to do. This was the fourth straight loss in the Super Bowl. And largely because he fumbled the ball three times. And it was his fault and he knew it. And in the midst of this, in the midst of his frustration, as he's sitting there trying to figure out what is he going to do next? Because how do you get up the next day and go back to doing what you're doing your job and try to even try to even make a, a, another run, if you will, to the Super Bowl? And suddenly, standing right in front of him, it's like the clouds parted, the, the crowds moved away, and there was the Dallas Cowboys star running back, Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith had just been named the MVP of the Super Bowl. He was carrying his little goddaughter in his arms and he walked her directly over to Thurman Thomas and he looked at Thurman Thomas and he said to his goddaughter, he says, I want you to meet the greatest running back ever in the NFL, Mr. Thurman Thomas. And I thought, that is a definition of humility. The man had everything he needed, all the accolades in the world, but instead of standing up there and kissing trophies and, and saying, I'm the man, he then walked his family over to someone else and said, this guy is even better than me. And I think that is a profound moment. We should seek those moments to teach humility to our kids and to allow God to teach humility to us. And it begins as we surrender to God, as we submit. The second thing we mentioned, as I mentioned, as I read Ephesians chapter 6, and that's resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is, this is one of the few commands in here that comes with a promise. It comes with the idea that the enemy, although he thinks he's great and powerful, he's not. And there's no way that he's going to be able to stand against God. And if we submit ourselves to a holy God and we are willing to resist the devil and his strength, the devil will flee from us. So what he's saying here is that we should fight back with the word of God. We should allow the Holy Spirit to move through us in such a way that when these moments of great trial come, we have the uh, uh, foundation to stand upon. Thing is, though, in our culture, 
standing up and, and fighting back doesn't mean the same as it does in other places. My brother Bill, you, you had a great prayer this morning as you were praying over the offering and, and what you're saying about having a safe place to be and to worship. I mean, we like warm. I mean, we, we think about the snow, but, but even more so was the, was the safety. And that's what I got from your prayer and the idea that, that we are safe here. We really are. We are safe from the hordes of people that want to end our lives because we serve a holy God. Not everywhere in the world you can say that. And the thing is, our freedom, we don't really recognize the full cost of it because we've had it for so long. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews said this, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And that's the question I think that, that, that James is trying to encourage his readers and probably encourage us too in this process of resisting. How far are we willing to go? What are we willing to resist with? Hebrews says that we have not yet risked, uh, resisted to the point of shedding blood. We should fight back with the word of God. We should fight back by singing great hymns and songs to the Lord, building great monuments, if we will, through our lives and our testimony to Jesus Christ. We fight back by getting on our knees and praying before a holy God, begging that Jesus, as we pray, as sang earlier, would come soon. We fight back with our brothers and sisters. We bind ourselves together in unity, marching forward, carrying the word of God in front of us. You know, we have a lot of sins in this society that we can yell at. It's easy to do. How hard is it to point out the abortion issue? How hard is it to deal with the fact that we have infidelity in our marriages? How hard is it to, to point to the, uh, the corruption that we have in government, the, the theft, the lying, the stealing that seems rampant in our communities? It's not difficult to find a sin to point to. But how do we fight back? We fight back by standing firm in the Word of God. We use God's word, not as, a, not as a bludgeon or a bully pulpit, but filled with grace and truth so that we can come alongside and with our testimony and our lives, share with those people that need to know the word the most. We fight back by confessing that Christ is ours openly, not hiding from it. We all have that moment. We all have those times. I know I have many times where I've walked into Walmart or one of the other grocery stores and, and I'm talking to the girl behind the counter and you know, God is so good about working his way in almost any conversation. You talk to anybody long enough, God's gonna bring himself out and it's amazing to me how he does that. And every time that happens in a conversation with somebody I don't know, I have a choice. I have a choice to openly confess that I am a follower of Christ or to take a step back. I'd like to say that every single time I've stood up and, and, and openly proclaimed that I am a follower. But there are times that I don't. I'm ashamed or I'm embarrassed. Or I don't feel like my testimony is worth it. Truth is, it's when we feel our, our low points that his testimony within us is, is, is the greatest to be seen. We fight back by fleeing temptation, standing and fighting. That's what we do. The Bible says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible then goes on to say, draw near to God. Draw near to God. So we see the beginning, we submit to God. The next thing, we, we decide to resist the devil. Now we're drawing near to God. So we see this idea of regrouping. These are all words that are used by a military community. The idea of drawing near to God is the idea that we're drawing near his banner. We're drawing, clustering in. He has sounded the, the horn and we are called to his banner. We draw near to him and he will draw near to us. That's what he's calling us to do. So we submit, we resist, we regroup. 
drawing near to God. This is a powerful thing. The one thing that I found is proximity is not the same as intimacy. When God's calling us to draw near, He's not just saying stand next to Him. He wants you near Him. Near like you are with your husband or your wife. Near in such a way that you know what they're thinking and feeling without them actually saying a word. You know, oftentimes I like to watch our older couples, the ones that have been married for a long time. Gary, you're an inspiration every time I watch you and Carol and the way you interact. It's amazing to me how much love there is between you two. And I tell you, it's a huge testimony to the rest of us as we look at you and say it's possible. We can go 50 years. We can be married for a long time. But, you know, you find out that, that, that you don't always have to, to have a constant running dialogue with your spouse to know what they're thinking or their feelings. Sometimes you've been living with them so long, you know them so well, you have truly become one flesh with them that their needs and your needs are almost synonymous. And when you get up to get something, you know you're going to get something for your spouse as well. That's that kind of intimate connection you have. And so when God says, draw near to me, he's not just asking you to, to walk next to him. He wants you to be next to him. That intimate moment As we said before, proximity is one thing, but intimacy is what God is calling us to be. Look what he says here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands. So we have submit, we have resist, we have regroup. And now we have this cleansing idea, this idea of refreshment that we have, cleaning ourselves before holy God. This is a hard thing to do. It's hard for us to be able to look at ourselves and say, what are you really asking me? You see, James is now turning his his lens upon himself and upon each and every believer that's reading this. And he's actually attacking the inner self, the inner man, the inner child, whatever you want to call it, the one that that desires his, his own pleasure over God's. This is the biggest challenge we'll have as Christians. This is where every problem and fight happens in your marriages, in your relationships, in churches. It's when we get our eyes off of Jesus and on ourselves and we focus on our own needs. I can't count the number of times that church members have, have, have left churches, and I've heard about it, my church, other churches, where they've gotten offended over one thing, silly things when you look back on it. And honestly, I know that if the people would, would just uh, admit to themselves in a quiet moment when they're just talking with God, they would realize it probably is a silly thing. But it doesn't change the fact that we get hurt, right? We get hurt because our family hurt us. I heard, uh, I heard something the other day on television I thought was pretty profound. A fellow was asking in his dialogue on the, on the show, he says, why is it family knows all the right buttons to push? And I thought about that for a minute as he asked the question to the audience in the, in the television, and then he answered it. And I'm really glad he answered it because I didn't really have an answer. He said, it's obvious because your family installed the buttons. I thought, that's pretty profound. Why does family hurt us more than anyone else? Well, because they help build the buttons they push. And that's just the way it is. So we can choose to be humble, to draw near God, to focus on cleaning ourselves rather than focusing on the hurt that we perceive that comes from outside. And we realize that we are all sinners and that our hearts need to be purified. We're all double-minded. We need our minds to be cleansed. So we see the refreshing that happens as we we seek to know and love God greater. And then he goes on a step further. He says to be miserable. Be miserable. Like James, you had me there. 
You had me going. I was moving along really well, but now you're asking me to be miserable. And then I thought, maybe that's just a typo, right? The, the Holy Spirit just used the wrong word. I don't think that happened, but who knows? Maybe we can overlook it. So be miserable. And then he goes on to say, and mourn and weep. I'm like, come on, James. And then we hear the words of Jesus in the background saying, blessed are they that mourn. They should be comforted. If you live any length of time, you know that sadness comes. If you live any length of time, you know that people leave us. People anger us. Kids grow up. They move away. Caleb came to me yesterday, a couple days ago, and said, Dad, I only have three semesters of school left. It's like, wow. It's almost like a, like a knife right there in the, in the soul. It's my baby, right? I don't want to say goodbye to him, but it's coming. Grief happens. It's how we respond to it. You know, we could be angry at it. We can always ask God, Lord, why are you doing this to me? But then again, we've got our focus wrong, right? We're not humble like we need to be. We're not looking at this moment of grief and saying, why are you doing this to me as though we deserve something better in our own minds? We should rather be asking, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? As I am miserable, as I'm grieving, that's the word there, as I'm grieving, as I'm mourning, as I'm weeping, as I'm allowing this laughter to turn into mourning and and joy to gloom, as I'm allowing this sadness into my life, what am I really doing? I'm refocusing my soul. God oftentimes allows things to happen to us in order to refocus our vision and get it off ourselves, get it off the wrong things and on Him. Many years ago, my oldest son, he was, um, he was a baby. He was two years old. And some things were happening. And I got some news that I was going to lose my son. And it broke me in a way that I don't think I've ever been broken before. I had been walking away from God. I had not been where he wanted me. I had been stepping out of his will and I, I didn't really understand it fully. And I'll never forget one of the few times in my ministry, in my life, where I actually had a full-on vision from God. I was working as a deli manager in Albertsons and if you've been here any length of time, you've probably heard this before, so deal with it. I'm going to say it again. I was working as a deli manager. I was, I was putting turkeys on a shelf, very labor-intensive and not real much on the brain power. In the process of it, I was praying. I was just talking. I was worried because I didn't know what was going to happen with my son. I didn't know if I was going to lose him completely. And I was continually worried about this. And I was praying that God would not let my son go, that he would keep him with me, that I would not have this, this pain, this tragedy. In the midst of putting the turkeys up, I was taken out of that place and I was suddenly standing in this empty space and I was in front of two pillars one pillar had my son on the top of it the other pillar had the Bible and I didn't hear the word of God but I I could feel what he was trying to teach me in this and I noticed that the pillar that my son was on was higher than the pillar that the Bible was on and I immediately knew that I was wrong I immediately knew that I had made my son an idol. 
And I felt the Spirit of God come over me in such a way that I, that I heard, I, I don't even know the words, it's hard to explain, but it was like he was telling me that my son belonged to him, not me. And that I had been given a privilege of caring for my son for two years. And rather than complain about the 16 years I thought I deserved, I should be happy with the couple that I was given. And I immediately repented. And I asked, I asked him to forgive me. I begged him. And I felt the Lord speak to me. And he said, first of all, that I was forgiven. And second of all, he told me that I would have my son till he was 18. And then my son belonged to God. And he was going to take him and use him. And I put that out of my mind because, hey, he was two, right? Nobody wants to think about 18 when you're two. But every time I looked at him, I couldn't forget that vision. And for 16 years, I waited. For 16 years, I enjoyed our time together. For 16 years, I did everything I could to help train him and teach him and to help him to be the man he would. And I always told him about this vision, so he knew what it was that was behind this. And he knew that he belonged to God, so even at a young age. We dropped him off to college after he turned 18. And he's never really been back since. And it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life was to say goodbye to my son, knowing that God had him. But I am thankful to this moment, to this day, that no matter where my son goes, God's hand is on him. And he is a man of character, honor, and integrity to this day. And he loves Jesus with all his heart to this day. And he's raising his family, loving his wife, and doing what he's been called to do because he belongs to God. My friends, sometimes... God uses these circumstances to refocus us. Sometimes it gives us the opportunity to look where God really wants from us and allow us to move forward. And that comes to our final passage. And that's verse 10. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So we start off with submit to God. We go to resist the devil. We move to regroup. We look at the refreshing, then the refocus, and we end where we began, being submissive, staying low, allowing God to be Lord of our lives. Humility is something that we should all strive for. But as D.L. Moody said, Lord, make us humble, but don't let us know you're doing it. This is where we are. So if you ask me what kind of message I want to give, you want to know what the takeaway is of this, and that's very simple. It's not, it's not complicated. James says to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. I think James is telling the first century church that, and I think he's also telling us that this morning. That if we want to be the church that God's called us to be, if we want to be that place here on the peninsula where people can point to and say that is a place that's filled with the Spirit of God, we don't need to look at this as a moment of pride. We need to look at it as an opportunity for us to be humble. I would rather people on the peninsula point to First Baptist Church Kenai and say that we are a humble people walking after him.
rather than to say we are a pretty people or that we are good singers. Oh, that would be nice. I'd rather him look at us and the world around here look at us as people that are real, that are not full of ourselves, that are filled with grace and mercy. And so when you look at verse 10, you have to pull yourself all the way back to the very beginning when he first starts discussing this in verse 6. He says that he gives a greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's God's grace that allows us to be humble. It's his working through us that allows us to be what he's called us to be. So if you're asking me how to begin 2019, I would say let's begin it in humility. Let's begin it in prayer. Let's begin it by refocusing on what we've been called to do. And I remind you what humility really means. It means confessing our sins. It means that we forgive our enemies. It means that we admit when we make a mistake. It means we don't brag about how good and great and wonderful we are. It means that we are willing to serve others with a smile, not with a frown. And that, I think, is the challenge that all of us face. So that's the charge I lay down in front of you. If you look at, as you look at 2019, as I've laid out these path, this pathway, ask yourself, are you confessing your sins? Are there enemies you have yet to forgive? What mistakes are you refusing to admit? Do you spend more time trying to to sideways pat yourself on the back? Do you serve people grudgingly? Or are we showing the love, the mercy, and the grace of Jesus Christ in humility the way God has called us to? So that's where we are this morning. And I encourage you guys to think about this. I know this message is primarily to those that are saved. Those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior can obviously see the avenues that James is putting down to say, yep, those are things that I need to do, those things I need to work on. But I know there may be a few of you sitting out there because statistically speaking in a congregation this size, there's at least four or five of you that don't know Jesus as your Savior. I can say this, that if you want to walk in humility, you'll never do it without Jesus. If you want to be be truly transcendent in your life and being able to resist the devil, you'll never be able to do it without Jesus Christ in humility. If you want to draw near to him, you'll only be able to do that as you humbly bow and submit to his authority. If you want to know the pathway through mourning and grieving, you can only do that through Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, please do not leave here without getting your heart right. There are numerous individuals throughout this congregation that would love to sit down with you, open up God's word, and show you what his word says about what it means to be saved. For the rest of us that love him and know him, I encourage you to listen to the words of James, not the words of Al, and see how you can apply these principles to your life. And I promise you, if you work hard on those six things contained in verses 7 through 10, and you work on that this year, 2020 will be a different year and you'll be able to look back on 2019 and say, this is where it changed. This is when my life shifted. I encourage you, follow God this week. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer as we open up the altar. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be your servant. Father, we know humility is no easy task. Father, we know that all of us want to be humble, but even asking for humility scares us. I don't know if any of us are ready for the task that you're going to set in front of us for humility to manifest. But Father, we know in this crucible of life that humility is one of the greatest virtues that you have set for us. Father, as the flames 
are turned up in our life, as crises come to our friends and our family and our own self, as we seek to understand your pathway forward, Lord, I ask that you'll give us the wisdom and the mercy to see your hand working through everything. We can see your sovereignness in the good and the bad. And we can stand on your promise when you say that all things work towards good for those who are called according to your purpose. Father, as we stand on your word, as we seek to resist the devil, as we want to be near you, cleansed from our iniquity, calling you Father, we ask you to walk forward with us that we might be able to be your servants in everything we do and say. Father, this week I ask that you give us the opportunity to see at least two or three people that we have never seen before that need to know about your love and your son. And Father, I ask that you'll give us the words we need to say that we might be able to, with a smile on our face, share the story of how you radically changed our lives. And Father, I ask if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Father, don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. As we seek to honor and love you in our word and deed, we open the altar. We ask for you to draw those that need to come down to the front, that we might be able to prayerfully, together, seek to honor you and love you. Well, we ask these things because of what your son did on the cross. And Father, it's in his name, in his power, that we now pray. So it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and your blessed Son, that we ask all these things. Amen.